0: Hey, everyone. I'm Mark Jorgensen, host and creator of the uh, Marcast podcast. i um, glad you could join in um, and listen to this podcast wherever you are in the world. Um, I've actually been looking on the stats, and actually there's quite a few listeners from all over the globe. So um, it's really cool to see... Um, you know, all the, where all the different listeners come in from. Um, so for this podcast, um, I actually interviewed um, an economist uh, by the name of Ike Brannan, um, who's been in D.C. for about 15 years um, and has actually become pretty well-known um, inside D.C. and beyond as well um, as uh, an economist. And I know that may not be the most interesting to everyone. That may be very interesting to some of you out there. I think it's interesting. Um, but we have a very interesting talk and um, at the very end we do kind of talk a little bit about behavioral e- economics and uh, I share some very interesting ideas about you know communicating ideas and, and, and how ideas become popular over time. Um, that's right at the end of our interview. Um, we also talk about a lot of other things that are um, very relatable. We talk about basketball. We talk about where um, the president um, there's a basketball court at the White House and uh, where the president plays basketball. Um, which is very interesting, and um, just some more general issues about DC and about why it's so hard for legislation to get passed and everything. So um, potentially this could be kind of a wonky, <laughs> kind of very technical podcast, but actually it's not that much. And um, you, Ike is a very good interviewing; he, he knows how to explain ideas in very, you know, very accessible, very understandable ways. So. Um, I hope you enjoy. And uh, just if you'd like to you know, spread the word about the podcast by sharing it. Um, it's on SoundCloud. It's on iTunes. And it's on Stitcher. So if you can share that with a friend and uh, leave a comment um, or anything like that, that would be great. And give it a rating as well. Um, that helps a lot. So um, appreciate it and Enjoy. <laughs> So uh, Ike Brennan, how are you doing today?
1: You're good. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me.
0: So um, what, what was your story, Ike? Like, why did you come into DC, and, uh, and what what kind of brought you here initially?
1: So um, uh, in two thousand and one, I was uh, a uh, professor with uh, the newly uh, received tenure, and uh, typically oh, really? wow. I was at the you know, University of Wisconsin in Oshkosh, and. Um, the, the deal typically is once you get tenure you get a sabbatical with that and so what I did is uh, I took my sabbatical and I had a job as a fellow in the Office of Management and Budget and uh, after doing that for a few months uh, another job offer came, one year job offer to go to uh, Capitol Hill and work on a congressional committee and uh, I, I think the thing a lot of people realize when they're in Washington D.C. is that uh, being on the Capitol makes you feel like you're in the center of the universe. So uh, you okay, know, after one year in uh, after one year in Washington D.C., I was, and uh, in, in especially in the Capitol, I was I was hooked. So um, I turned that, that second one-year job into a permanent thing and ended up working on the Hill on and off for um, until two thousand and eleven. So uh, about 10 years on the hill. Um, so you came out, you
0: were a professor of, of what? You taught economics? i an economics
1: professor. OK,
0: so you studied at uh, University of
1: Wisconsin as well? Or? I did not. I studied. I got my uh, undergraduate degree at Augustana College in uh, Rock Island, Illinois, yeah. uh, which is where uh, Prince's airplane uh, landed just uh, two or three days ago when he was uh, ill. Yeah. Um, so it was in the news there. And then I got my PhD at Indiana University. Where, and where are you from originally? I'm from Peoria,
0: Illinois. Oh, really? So it's kind of like Central Illinois, right? Central, Central right in the middle. Central Central yes, it is
1: the, it is the capital of Central Illinois. Um,
0: and so was that your idea when you were going to school? You wanted to teach, or um, did you kind of want to just have it sort of like one of those open-ended kind
1: of careers and no, you weren't it, sure which um, one to do? Or? So my, I think I always wanted to teach, um, yeah. even even in grade school and high school. And um, uh, I was never quite sure what I wanted to teach. And when I yeah. got to college, I... Uh, I realized I wanted to teach economics, and, and the deal is that um, there are very few economic instructors at the high school level. I think my my idea always going in was that I was going to um, be a basketball coach and uh, and and teach. And uh, what happened is when I kind of figured out that uh, there's no guarantee of teaching high school economics, I uh, I decided on graduate school to teach it at, at the college level. Um, the irony is that when I finished my uh, the year I finished my Ph.D., um, my alma mater, Indiana University, offered me a, a permanent instructor job. At the same time, I was offered a, a, a basketball coaching uh, job at the local high school. So uh, that did develop. So, um, But you know, my, my advisor asked me, did I, did I spend you know five and a half years in graduate school to coach basketball or to be an economist? So <laughs> I decided I... Did you play basketball growing up? I play, too? Yeah, I played basketball in high school.
0: Yeah. yeah so I guess it was something you loved and just wanted to keep in your life right yeah
1: so I still I still play basketball today so um, yeah it's important to me and it always has been um, and probably always will but uh, you know I, when you when you make a big investment of uh, you know spend nine nine or ten years of your life studying something uh, yeah. you know it's tough not to do that and i I like economics a lot too so I'm, I'm happy with uh, the decision I made did you have a specialization in economics when you studied it or was it so I did uh, when you uh, when you do a PhD you do various you have to pick two or three fields and so my my fields were uh, labor markets and uh, this thing called industrial organization which uh, looks at how more or less how businesses make decisions in the confines of the regulatory environment yeah. that they uh, they face themselves so um, but no I didn't really have you know, some people come out and they have a narrow specialty, they're econometricians, or they um, are going to think about only about tax policy. And I really didn't have, uh, I didn't have that focus. So I've, I've kind of moved around from area to area. So probably right now, um, to the extent that people know who I am in the economics uh, discipline, they probably think of me as a as a tax economist, but um, in various uh, previous incantations I was really, uh, I was more of a regulatory economist, and I, I still write a lot about regulatory issues. I still think yeah. about labor market yeah. issues. Um, so, there, being a spe- a generalist is not the way to move up in academia, but uh, it served me well, and it's keep me very interested in economics. So,
0: getting tenure pretty early on I me—that's mean, kind of that's a pretty big deal, right? I mean, that's kind of hard to come by. I mean, um, it was relatively young, early in your career, right? When you I just, out of school, it wasn't that.
1: I I came up one year early, and I, it came up just. Simply because I wanted to, I wanted to get my uh, yeah. my sabbatical as early as possible. But, I, you know, for people who kind of go out directly out of uh, college into graduate school and go from graduate school directly into um, academia, what I did wasn't all that fast. I think most people at some point take yeah. a year or two either between college and graduate school, or between graduate school and entering academia. And I just kind of did the straight path. Mm-hmm. it was kind of common then i think it's less common now i think people who are coming up who really want to be economists uh, especially ones who go to top schools are more cognizant that they it helps them to to uh, to get more experience so there's if you look at the people the 20s the 22 23 24 year olds who are at the top uh, consulting firms in dc or places like the bureau of labor statistics the yeah. national budget office all those people have in mind that they're going to do this for two or three years and they're hoping that this experience will allow them to uh, to get into a better graduate school and also they hope uh, give them uh, an idea of what they could possibly do their dissertation with which you have that going in it can really speed up uh... how much time it takes for you to finish your dissertation so have you still
0: have you taught at all like at you know kind of part-time or adjunct faculty in the so since what? you've been coming to, after coming to DC? Right. But I
1: was Working for Congress for a decade, I did a uh, a monthly lecture for the uh, National Defense University on the transatlantic economy. Yeah. Um, but no, I haven't done any adjunct teaching. Um, the The problem with adjunct teaching, as everyone who's done it knows, is it doesn't pay all that much for what it is. So um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I so you know I have, I have a young family and uh, I have a consulting business where. Uh, spending three hours on my consulting business pays me a lot more than spending uh, three hours on teaching. So it's kind of, it's kind of an easy call. It, you know, it's someday maybe when uh, when I, my kids are out of the house, I I might go back to teaching. But um, and I enjoy teaching a lot. It's uh, it's very exciting to be around yeah, kids who yeah. like to learn all that but um yeah it just doesn't quite fit into what i'm doing right now um
0: can i just touch on the economics in dc um as far as like the knowledge of econ in dc but just more generally i mean where do you think that the knowledge of econ is lacking most in just kind of the the people that are making policy decisions and politicians or their staffs you know where do you think people are most far behind or or that they should know things you think that are more intuitive that they should know that would help
1: i to to me the most frustrating thing has been uh predilection for a lot of people to simply throw away supply and demand when it doesn't uh, doesn't quite fit the story they want to tell so um, for instance I've had a number of debates where we talk about uh, the minimum wage and the argument a logical argument for the minimum wage is that if you raise the minimum wage a few people will lose their job uh, but that the elasticity of labor demand, is very low uh and that the few people who will lose their jobs is outweighed by the fact that other people will get a higher wage sure that's defensible i don't i don't agree even if the elasticity of labor uh demand were that low i still don't think that's an acceptable trade-off i think there's other ways to help people but the argument that i get when i've debated this is that Supply and demand doesn't matter. You can raise it to fifteen dollars an hour, and employers will employ the same amount of people. Yeah. Wages really don't matter to them at this level, and um, I there's no justification. This is just what economist I'm just told. This is what smart economists believe. There's a list of people in Chicago who have said this, um, yeah. and so yeah. I and I I think there's this tendency to. Um, to set aside the precepts of supply and demand whenever it's inconvenient so you know I'm, uh, I'm friends with uh, Richard Thaler who he would deny this but I think he really is the founder of, uh, of behavioral economics uh, along with a few other people but I mean, he's the one who I think really made it into a sub-discipline and he's come up and, and his uh, his acolytes have come up with some really interesting and innovative ideas about how people make decisions but I think the one downside to behavioral economics is yeah. that when things don't quite fit the way you think the world should work or the way you want the world to be thought of as working, you can simply set it aside and say, well, you know, supply and demand doesn't quite work. People aren't quite that rational. There's other reasons why you think that if prices go up, demand won't, quantity demanded won't fall. Let's talk a little bit about DC
0: in general. You've been here about, I guess, about fifteen years. That is, Um, have things changed much, and how have they changed in that fifteen years, Um, Um, just kind of professionally, and just kind of, I don't know, just more as a city and
1: the way things get done. Or so this might be kind of a a trite observation, but it does feel like it's much more difficult for Congress to get things done than it was a a decade ago. Um, You know, my my first two or three years on the Hill, I didn't have a very senior job. Naturally, I just Moved to this town, I just joined the Hill, but it just seemed like I was going from meeting to meeting where we we're talking about legislation that had a real chance of moving. Yeah. And now when uh, my friends call me on the Hill and they want to talk to me about legislation they're thinking about, my first question is always, does this have any chance of passing in the current Congress? And the <laughs> answer is, 95% of the time, of, of course it doesn't. We're just trying to do something, uh, hoping to lay the groundwork for something else. And sometimes the legislation they're talking about is something that that ought to pass, like we need a uh, the uh, current uh, higher education bill uh, expires. It needs to be reauthorized. So I've written a couple things uh, that are pertinent to this. Uh, I think that's that's the biggest, um, to me, that's the biggest uh, difference. And part of it might be I just have a, a slightly different perspective than I had 14 or 15 years ago when I first got
0: here, I don't know. Is there any end to this, though? I mean, it seems like this is kind of like, like kind of the consensus from people on, on all sides, really. I mean, it doesn't really seem to be, you know, coming from any one particular part of it. I mean, I mean w- what's the next step for this? Just kind of continually get worse and harder? Or do um, we get we a, reach a breaking point? I, I don't know what... <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. I, I, you, <laughs>
1: know I, you know, I've, I've a, I'm, I'm a, I have a libertarian perspective, so... Um, from from uh, one perspective, I would say, well, this is good because a lot of times when Congress gets together and acts in a bipartisan uh, fashion, we often uh, end up with legislation that, that doesn't do all that much or is actually harmful. So, sure. um, if my choice is a Congress that's that's uh, incredibly active and a Congress that can only do what what absolutely needs to get done, I would I would probably take the latter one most of the time. But uh, you know. So you can you could envision
0: a worse worst case scenario pretty, pretty easily <laughs> it's very right? easy to consider. yeah, yeah okay. scenario. So, um, so. we talked about the education a little bit or you mentioned that um, do you see that bubble bursting you know the student debt levels and not, not whether you know governments can support it and rising tuition costs yeah
1: what, um, where does that go I think I think the biggest problem in this uh in the whole higher ed is we, we have, it's the same problem that, that affected the home loan market in the, uh, a decade ago. So um, right now um, we can make loans, businesses and, and the federal government can make loans to people and colleges can admit people and take their money. yeah And the colleges have absolutely no vested interest and those people completing school yeah. so um, <laughs> yeah basically none yeah yeah so it's, just, it's like the same thing a bank you know 10 years ago a bank could make a, a home loan to somebody and they would see that that person had no ability to really maintain payments and that but it didn't matter to them because they were going to be able to securitize and sell off that loan and that would give them money to make more home loans and so uh, nobody had a vested interest in examining and making sure that the, the people taking the loan uh, we're actually qualified and could potentially pay for these things. So right. to me, this is a, this is a, a big problem uh, in the uh, in the market. So I in a, in a article I wrote for uh, the Weekly Standard a month or two ago, I said, uh, I think the logical thing to do would be to reform how we do uh, loans. And my, my first suggestion was we should allow um, st- uh, students who are uh, well behind in their debt and have no hope in, in repaying their debt. we should allow them to declare bankruptcy. Right now, uh, student debt, uh, federal guaranteed student debt, and actually all debt is uh, ex- is uh, excluded. Well, from well I, th- I so. think they're
0: loosening up on that a tiny bit, but but there's very few exceptions. Yeah, yeah. But so but, but the White, White, starting, House, the White House
1: basically allowed some people who were disabled to um, right, okay, yeah. to uh, escape their debt. So, yeah. but I mean, you know, um, so my father was a bankruptcy attorney in uh, Oh, really? Purinoy until uh, just a few years ago, and. So he has plenty of examples where people are quasi-indigent. They're making $15,000 a year uh, as a short-order cook. They have $20,000 of loans from um, some school of cosmetology that they can never hope to repay, and they're declaring bankruptcy, and the bankruptcy judge will still... Say, I understand you're not even making enough to, to make ends meet, but we're still gonna to have to ask you to make a monthly payment.
0: So you're saying if that were change, were to happen, where someone could not pay that back, that would have to be at the federal level
1: that would have to happen? Or we're that would be at yes. the state level? No, that no, would that's, to, that's a, oh, because it's that's federal, federal. federal It's a federal law. So, yeah. uh, so okay. doing that right. and okay. then combining it with some kind of change in terms of how um, the students get loans so that the college that admits them yeah. loses something If they admit somebody and uh, they default on their student loans, I think you'd then see colleges making a much better decision about admitting people who who are qualified to finish this. Well,
0: I think at a minimum, schools should have to show. They should have, I mean, they show all their employment numbers, which are, you know, they kind of fudge sometimes, but they should have to show what's our default rate. You know, if we're having 10% of people in this category, you know. Colleges do, so one thing, they do show that.
1: Yes, they do. They're required to report that to the okay. federal government. The other thing that I, I find interesting is they have... But, like, can
0: students, if I'm applying to a school, is that kind of easy to find? I mean, I'm, I'm sure we, if you looked yeah. around hard enough, but it's probably not something that's like... Like, employment statistics, they, they show that very up front. So, so I
1: would argue that, that that's probably a, a secondary concern. I think okay. if, I, if I were advising yeah. a student, I would say, look at, um, maybe look at employment rates, look at the proportion of students who go on to graduate school. Yeah. Um, I think those would be two of the bigger things. Uh, the other areas. thing I think is, a, is important is to look at... The proportion of people who, um, who after they enter your school in the first year, how many are still there in the second year, and how many finish after four and five years. So, for instance, I'm just looking at, I'm doing a study for um, uh, a, uh, an institute in uh, Wisconsin, looking at uh, the Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin system, and... Um, you know the the typical say for the flagship school. You look at the typical uh, UW system school. Uh, about one one third to one fourth of all students drop out uh, after their first year of uh, of college. Wow. And uh, and then one if, th- one third to one fourth. You yes, said yes. Yes. That's wow. So like the beware kids. Yeah. Uh, kids. Watch out. Yeah. And and then the other thing is is that uh, on average about one third of all students who started four years ago finish. Uh, in four years, so okay. um, you, stay you really have this, yeah. or yeah, or they're not finishing at all. So yeah. um, it's, it's really become the standard for no good reason that I can figure that it takes five years to finish at a state school. It's it's yeah. radically different at a uh, at a private school. So you know I went to Augustana College, Rock Island, Illinois, uh, and the little rule that Augustana had at the time, if you had any financial aid, it ended after four years, no questions asked, no ands, ifs, or buts everybody finished in four years without exception. In my class, the people who, some people dropped out after their first year, a few people transferred after the second year, but nobody said, oh, I'm gonna stick around for a fifth year. That, that number yeah. was zero.
0: Really? Um- I, I've discussed this with a friend, and I think this probably wouldn't fly for a number of reasons. But what about limiting the amount of aid available for, you know, non-quantitative majors? You know, mm-hmm. having the aid be much easier to get if it's like an engineering degree or a math degree or something, but make it a lot harder if it's a degree that has you know, where the job prospects are diminishing significantly. You know, you limit or, or eliminate perhaps. Well, in some you, cases know, you know, you know, when
1: I was uh, Mark, when I was a statistics professor, I always really began the class by asking them. Um, what major makes the most amount of money yeah. uh, from college 20 years from now? And, and the answer, after they guess everything under the sun, the answer was, at least in the, in the study I was citing from, uh, from 20 years ago, the answer was French major. And then I'd I ask them to to explain to me why French majors are so valuable. And they they all hem and haw and say, well, I guess there's not many French majors, so it must be a supply and demand thing. Maybe French is a really important language. And I said that the, the reality is that really smart people who know they're going to be rich no matter what yeah. they do, they like to study French. And then after they study French and they go live in Paris for a year or two yeah. and, and figure out a way to eke out a living there, they'll go get their MBA or their law degree or something like that and they'll go make lots of money. So, sure. um, you know, I'm a, I, I empathize with that, that you want to make sure students get out of college with some kind of, um, kind of degree. Um, so what I found, I, I used to do, do some, uh, some research in this area, is that uh, the problem um, isn't so much with colleges. Most co- the good colleges at least, um, they produce students who have tangible skills. I think there's a lot of students who uh, five or ten years down the road regret studying sociology instead of engineering. And I think you're right that they should do a little bit more to nudge people to make sure that they get something that that qualifies them or that's some kind of certificate that signals that they have some quantitative background but the big problem is really twofold it's the people who start college and don't finish uh and the other problem are these people who who get something that's that's less than a college degree Um, junior colleges are fine they do a great job but it's people who go to things like uh, you know they go to some kind of quasi trade schools like those yeah. degrees um, aren't necessarily all oh, that great like there are there are people who cut hair who make lots and lots of money um, but there are also lots of people who spend eight thousand dollars all of which they borrowed from the federal government uh, to study cosmetology and then they realized that um, like in the, in the city of Memphis a few years ago they were producing each year more cosmetologists than were were then were employed in the entire uh, in the entire region so um, yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I guess the final anecdote in this, so I, I, did, I used to live in Phoenix, Arizona, and I knew a lot of people that worked for the University of Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of them were essentially, they would call up people, they'd walk them through filling out their FAFSA so they could get you know their grant, their Pell Grant and their student loan. The people would go for a semester, they usually drop out after taking a few classes, they'd keep the money, they wouldn't pay it back usually. Um, but that was it, you know, they're essentially just calling up people all over the country You know, basically convincing them that they can get this free money, take a class or two, and, uh, you know, very low participation rates. So I'm not sure if we should go into the libertarian thing. Uh, Do do you think there will be a credible libertarian candidate for president in the next, you know, next election? By 2020, let's say? No. No? Okay. It's
1: a two-party system. It's really difficult to see. Um, You know— yeah, I just can't see how it's ever going to happen. I think it's just we're we're too huge a two party system.
0: But but it is gaining in popularity a lot amongst people in their twenties and thirties. I know a lot of people that you know they seem to like the libertarian thing. You know, I don't know if it's just a temporary
1: thing, but like I, so. I I think it's it's socially acceptable. It's it's never socially acceptable. In, in urban areas, to say you're a conservative, sure, people. okay, yeah, but it's yeah. it's socially yeah. acceptable yeah. to say you're a libertarian, and and right. um, so for better or worse, I don't know. So I see I see all the support for Bernie Sanders, who's not maybe not quite a socialist socialist, but he wouldn't mind the government uh, radically increasing tax rates and taking over a lot of the factors of production and totally taking over healthcare, for instance, and maybe a few other industries to boot. Sure. So, I. I don't know. Um, you know, I,
0: I think... Well, the no, Sanders thing, I mean, I was talking to a friend. I mean, I think I mean, he's probably not going to win. I, I don't think he's going to win. You know, there's almost no chance of that happening. But, you know, his whole um, campaign, I think, will have effects that go f- reach far beyond because he's basically sold the idea of socialism and all these kind of socializing ideas to a whole generation of, like, young people, people in their 20s and 30s and younger, I think. So I,
1: so I, I fear that... Or would you, a, you disagree? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not very comfortable pre- predicting uh, long social uh, sure, ramifications. Sure, <laughs> so I will say this. So all these people who support him, people in college, um, in my experience, uh, certainly in grad, not my college, which was a, a fun college. and never, never hewed to propaganda, but uh, at, at the college I taught and the college I, uh, uh, I got my PhD in, uh, the liberal arts were uh, run by people who felt it was their duty to inculcate little socialists. Um, these people have, have been um, beginning four years of socialist and Marxist drivel and uh, it doesn't surprise me at all that people in their teens and early twenties think that uh, what Bernie Sanders is selling is a great thing. Um, so what, what happens is that at some point all these people get uh, mugged by reality. They, uh, they get a great job and they're making fifty thousand dollars a year and then they realize oh they got a ten thousand dollar raise and, and five thousand of that five thousand dollars is going to, uh, to taxes or they uh they live in Washington D C and they have a kid and they realize that cute little neighborhood they're living in has uh, has deplorable schools and um yeah. and suddenly people people uh are mugged by reality in the words of uh, Irving Christie.
0: I just want to talk about talk about basketball because we kind of skipped over a little bit. You play where where do you play around here? Do you play uh, with people so, from the Capitol Hill or? What?
1: I, so I, I used to there was a game there still is a game they rent uh. Where do they play? Uh, there's a, a, a high school near. Uh, it was a high school a few blocks away from the capital oh, yeah. um, and a, uh, a group of staffers has been for almost 40 years now has been renting it out uh, uh, four times a week um, when I when I first got to Washington, D.C. Um, one of those guys found me uh, and I played that for a while. Um, what position do you play? I uh, So I'm a shooting guard cool. um, to the extent that people have positions and pick up games. Yeah, um, okay. So I kind of, I kinda, I, I, mean, I basically, when I had kids, I became too old for that game and not fast enough to keep up with the young staffers. So, um, we, uh, in, my, in my neighborhood, we, we found a gym and we, uh, we made this basically the same offer to uh, the church there to rent it out uh, uh, four mornings a week, so um, luckily I'm, I'm not quite the slowest, worst player in, in my life, but uh, now that I'm in my 50s, it's, uh, I'm getting very close to that. Um,
0: I heard is there a basketball court at the White House too I heard there might
1: there's I a might uh, be there's wide. a small uh, half court uh, behind the uh, behind the bas- behind the White House basically so nice. it's uh, let's see it's not quite wide enough to have a three pointer in the uh, okay. in the corners so I think I think it's like 17 or 18 feet in the corners and then it basically goes out to maybe 25 foot it's 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 not quite the size of a of a of a half a tennis court but it's something like that at one point when i was working for the uh, working at omb i went over and shot around with a few guys um, it's nice it's very uh, it's very clean uh, you feel very secure when you're playing there obviously but um yeah it's you know a two on two is kind of uh, all you can do there
0: is that, that's where the president plays i assume when he wants to just get a few baskets in
1: so he's just around there so the, they uh the president rents a, a gym near there so um, okay. I, don't, I don't think i'm telling you a secret there's a great gym in the department of interior that's uh, that's two blocks away so the year i i worked at uh when i first got to dc and was working for office of management mudget i connected with some uh guys who uh, uh who worked for the department of justice and they uh, they had an arrangement to rent out that that gym a couple afternoons a week and so i was playing with them. It's a great court. It's, uh, it's kept in great shape, and uh, I think especially when you get older, you don't want to do a, uh, a high school-sized court, and that court is uh, is more of a junior high level. So, it's, um, so that's where those guys play. I'm not sure where, where the president's going to play uh, once he's no longer commander-in-chief. His wife, uh, we, he and I have a, a mutual friend, and I know his wife. After he took an elbow in the uh, eye and, and needed stitches, his wife's been... Uh, suggesting to him that he finds uh, more sedate pursuits. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, I, I play ultimate frisbee, and I've kind of thought about this recently. I'm I'm 34, and it's as it's harder for me to keep up with some of the people that are younger now. And I've kind of gotten to this. i um, trying to figure out what's a better sport to play as you get older. Um, ultimate frisbee is okay, but I think basketball's got to be one of the better sports to play as you get older because I mean, it better than like baseball and football. I mean, it's easy to play. I mean, it's you don't necessarily have to be the fastest person; you can still compete. I don't know, but do you have any idea of a better sport? It that probably seems. I I, think,
1: I guess you know if you like the the paddle sports. I think people people there are lots of people who seem to oh. play tennis in their sixties and seventies. Okay, I yeah. Yeah. very few people. There are very few people who seem to be playing uh, playing basketball in the fifties. I don't know. Uh, you know, every uh, I I'd go through a pair of basketball shoes about uh, about once a year or so, and. Um, and I, yeah, I always buy them at the, I always buy my shoes at this place that is it has oh, two, you buy you buy two and your second one's half off and I always feel when I buy two shoes I'm I'm making this uh, ridiculous commitment but and the other <laughs> thing I notice is that nobody else who seems to be buying shoes there is ever within 25 years of my age. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Great uh well well thanks a lot I guess for my last question is on behavioral economics um do you have like a favorite book or a favorite uh, you know our author a piece if someone's interested to learn more about that. Yeah, so there's there's,
1: there's there's all three of them would, uh, that I like on this are uh, by uh, by Dick Saylor. Um, the one is called um, a Nudge, which you've probably heard of. He, he wrote that with Cass Sunstein, which goes through a lot of um, uh, different examples about um, where he thinks you could use behavioral economics to influence public policy. What first got me interested in this was... Um, a book that Taylor wrote 20 years ago, called *The Winner's Curse*. It was a uh, compendium of his articles he wrote for um, an economics journal on behavioral economics. And I, to me, this is the, the, the seminal work in um, in behavioral economics. It really lays out the problems and and it makes a compelling argument why economists need to uh, to deal with it. So. Um, Uh, it was a very influential book on on how I thought about economics Um, and then um, there's a last book that Richard Taylor wrote that's a uh, it's more or less an autobiography how he got interested in in behavioral economics and also a little bit about how he became an economist and the decisions he made um, moving up the greasy pole of academia and what led him to be which is right now somebody who is on the short list to win the Nobel Prize so it's very I like a lot, I think it's a very frank and honest portrayal of of his life and um, one of the other lessons that that I've gotten from from Dick Thaler is that um, it's much easier to succeed in your discipline as an economist if you are a very good writer and you spend a lot of time and attention to writing things as clearly and succinctly as possible.
0: Oh, in a way that people can understand. That's right. And hold on to an idea. idea right. and so, and so, you know,
1: Thaler, Thaler publishes. Uh, he you know he writes books, which most economists don't write books, but he still writes academic articles, and he really stands apart. And then he's one of the few economists um, who can uh, who can really write clearly. And then the other the other very influential economist who thinks about behavioral economics and beyond is is Deirdre McCloskey. She has a, a, an affiliation with Cato and. Um, I think, her, I think one of her main contributions was in this uh, fantastic book she wrote 30 years ago called The Red e- e- Economics. She made the point that economists are getting very sloppy with their language as well as their statistics. And um, it, it's kind of funny, she wrote the book to, in, in part to critique a what was at the time the most influential paper in economics, um, on, uh, r- which began Rational Expectations by, um, uh, John Muth, who uh, was ironically a professor of mine at the time, and um, We're at, it. at Indiana, yeah, Indiana University. Indiana. Okay. It has a very influential uh, paper, and it really changed macroeconomics. Uh, Muth did not get a lot of the credit. It was not Muth who won the Nobel Prize for rational Why economics. Not? Just, and, oh. and so it was because he was not, that paper didn't get a lot of attention right away because it was so difficult oh. to read. And, um, yeah. and so I thought it was interesting. She, You know, in this thing, she, she made the comment that the paper really had a quiet 10 or 20 years before it really took over uh, the, uh, the discipline and changed how people thought about it. And, and she uses the number of citations in the social science citation index and uh, normally when a paper is uh, published it gets cited a few times the first year and a handful of times maybe the year after and then it kind of dies a quiet death and Moose paper uh, on the other hand uh, it increased the number of citations uh, each and every year, from when it was published in 1961, a nice growth curve. A, a, a nice growth <laughs> curve. And you know, uh, Muth told me a story once. He didn't. Uh, he didn't get a raise one year in um, Indiana because um, uh, they told him that. Uh, well, you know, people aren't reading your stuff as much anymore. And then he went to the Social Science Citation Index. This is before we were all on the internet. And he showed that uh, that he was the most uh, highly cited uh, <laughs> social scientist in the in the world uh, in the last five years. So. Interesting. anyway I, I bring this up because yeah. I think it's kind of ironic because DeJ McCloskey's uh, treatise on how important it is that economists write well and how that they're not used they don't use statistics correctly um, it was an idea she planted 30 years ago and uh, I think it's really in the last five or even the last two or three years that, that this I, these ideas have really uh, have really become to be understood by by the discipline and so, I think, in her her own way, I think she's proved to be almost as influential as Bob Mooth has, John Muth has, on uh, economics.
0: Thanks for coming in, Ike.
1: Mark, I appreciate it. Thanks.